thought about Elijah. You know, I think that sometimes when we hear the Bible preached and we hear stories growing up in Sunday school and, and such, we get this idea of, of these Bible characters really as, um, as, as just people that are invincible, right? Think of Elijah as, you know, the, a man of great courage. And, um, but we remember what James said about him in James chapter 5, verse 17. He said that he was a man, a great man of God, but he had like passions as we do. Um, he, had, he had moments when he was very discouraged. And I want to look at one of those times with you this morning and talk about what he did, what it looked like, discouragement looked for him. And then at the end, I would just like to talk about how God encourages us. And I want to really make it practical for us. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, the first two verses, and let's read that together. And Ahab told Jezebel, Ahab was the king of this part of Israel called Samaria or this part of Judah. And, um, and how Elijah had executed all the prophets of Baal with a sword. I mean, that was a powerful moment. How many of you remember that? When the, when the prophets of Baal challenged Elijah, said, we will, we will challenge you to see who is the God who, who answers by fire. And so, they, so the prophets of Baal, Baal was a, was a God that was worshiped, which is really just, a, just another name for Satan or the devil. And he, he was a God that was worshiped in paganism in, in Israel at the time. And the prophets of Baal said, we will challenge you, Elijah, to a sacrifice. And the God who answers by fire shall be the God, the true Lord. And we know the prophets were sacrificing this oxen on the, on the altar. They were cutting themselves and it was just all day and all night to the point where it was pretty gruesome it was, and there was no answer from heaven. Then we read that Elijah got, got up. He came and he repaired the altar. That's a beautiful picture because I think the altar, the spiritual altar today in so many lives, so many families and so many nations today is broken down. And the man of God, and he comes in the chapter 18, the previous chapter, repairs the altar. And then he puts a sacrifice on it. And then he takes 12 barrels of water. Imagine that. One barrel for each tribe of Israel. That speaks of unbelief, the impossibility. Even if God answered by fire, it would be too wet to burn, right? And, he, and, and uh, so much water that the water just kind of goes over the sacrifice, over the altar, and it goes into the, into the, the trough around the altar. And then it says that Elijah called everybody close. And I love that because what the prophets of Baal were doing was, was just so sensational, so gross. People were just kind of backing away. Um, it was just too much for them to see, too graphic. And then the man of God comes and he says, and he says uh, come close. So everybody gets closer. And he prays a 20-second prayer. And it's a beautiful thing. He prays 20 seconds and fire comes down from heaven. As we know, and it just... There's this stream of fire that just comes down from the heavens, burns up the sacrifice, burns up the altar, burns up all the water that was in the, in the canal, the trough around it. And then everybody shouted. And then, and then Elijah had the prophets of Baal killed by a sword. Yes, a man of God. And we, I think if that happened today, we'd probably be in jail if we did something like that. And we see the power of God. Ex we see, man, this Elijah is a great man. And Elijah was a prophet of just mighty deeds and power and, and saw many miracles. And he was really like next to Moses in his greatness in the Old Testament. Yet, he was a man. He was a man. 
And after a moment when he had called fire down from heaven, he was on the run. We read here, let's read this. Then Jezebel sent messengers to Elijah, verse two of chapter 19, first Kings, saying, so let the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. Jezebel sends Elijah a text message, an email, and he gets it, and he's looked, you ever get a text message, you get some really bad news, a letter in the mailbox, and it just hits you, it's just like a, it's like a sucker punch, it's like, it's like it just takes all the breath out of you. Many, many times this happens after a great miracle, and I think that when our most vulnerable times in our lives is when we have great success, when we're in a place where things that seem to be really powerful and really amazing and yet with that's when we're off guard and that's when Jezebel sends a threat and what does Elijah do he's on the run and it says it says in verse 3 and when he saw that he rose and ran for his life he ran for his life you know two things I want to say number one Elijah what's the secret of Elijah's power and number two how we can be encouraged and do we know the secret of Elijah's power? You know, there was a, there was a writer, his name is F.B. Myers, back in the day, one of these classical writers. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, he wrote a book, a very curious titled book, and I read it. It was an amazing book, and it said, the title of the book was The Secret of Elijah's Fire. And it goes into the book, the book goes into all the times when Elijah had to wait on God, when, when Elijah was, was vulnerable. And... We know him as the prophet of fire. And he's on his way, he's, he's running, and he's, and he's making his way to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, it's the same place. Uh, Elijah's thought that as he's running to this mountain away from Jezebel, he's running to a geographical place of where his sense of power was historically. Remember Mount Sinai? was where the, the law was given by Moses. And it was a mountain in, he, in Hebrews chapter 12 that was a mountain that was, that was to be set apart that could not be touched by people and no animal could be on it. And if any animal or person touched that mountain because it was so holy, they were to either be burnt with fire or a spear was to, be, was to run through them. It was untouchable. And this was a very powerful place. And in Elijah's mind, who was a man of just acquainted with power and miracles and and the ability to um, see, to leverage, leverage circumstances and to be around influential people, um, Elijah felt that he needed to go to this mountain of power. And this is what we do. When we get discouraged, when we, see, when we look at things by sight, and maybe you're doing that this morning, maybe you're just seeing things by sight, and it's very discouraging. Um, what do we do? We start going back to that time where we remember, wow, I remember when God was so powerful in my life. When I saw the angels or when I got saved or when I sensed the power of God or the love of God in my life, right? And we, and we felt like we were being used by God or we spoke from God and, and there was a sense of power. And so Elijah's thinking, I've gotta get back to that moment. And what was that moment for him historically? He's looking at Mount Sinai. There was no other greater moment in Elijah's mind in the Old Testament than when God came down and all of Israel was trembling. And remember, Elijah is a prophet to Israel and he's very grieved about the circumstances and the moral state of Israel. And so I'm going, he says, I'm gonna go back to Mount Sinai, I'm gonna to try to reconnect with this God of, of terror and this God of, of power and where, where all of Israel were, 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 were revering his presence and, 
and their justice was swift, and there was no compromise in justice. And so he's on his way to this mountain because he needed a place, he needed to go to a place where he could feel and reconnect with the sense of God's power. We do that sometimes. If you've been a believer for a period of time, there are moments when it's quiet, when it doesn't seem like there's no power. I think if we wanna go to a church and just hear powerful, sensational messages, we can do that. Um, I kind of like to look sometimes at scripture at the moments where many times we live this place of just the ordinary, the mundane, and we find God and so Elijah's on the run. He's running. Um, Wednesday night we were here at our, at our small group study here. And we had, a, we had a handful of kids that were with us. And it was really cool. We were talking about this. And we were talking about discouragement. And I asked the kids, there was four of them. I said, there was Micah, there was Noah, there was uh, Eliza, and then there was um, Jackson. And I said, kids, what do you think? Why do we get discouraged? And Micah said, uh, it's because we may feel that we're not meeting what is expected of us. We may be feeling that we're not good enough. Wow, that's amazing, huh? 14, I think he's 14, right? The 14-year-old said that. Then Noah, who's what, 12, 13? Correct me. Um, he, said, he said it could be because we feel like that we're being hindered. Somebody's in our way. Something's in our way, and we can't overcome it, and we get discouraged. And Eliza said sometimes we feel we're discouraged because we're let down. Okay, how old is Eliza? I don't know. Okay, she's gonna be 10 next week. Wow, these kids like really, I mean these kids think, kids by the way, young people think with God more than we think they do. They're thinking, they really are. And, and then Jackson who is what, six, five, seven? Okay, Jackson said, he said fear. We get discouraged because of fear. And that's exactly here what happened with Elijah. Elijah was discouraged because he was afraid. Elijah loses his courage and there were six stages of discouragement. I wanna look at those really briefly. The six stages, we can see the downward spiral of Elijah, the man of God. And if you think that you're a Christian and you can't get discouraged or, there's, or a pastor or a leader cannot get discouraged, there's so much warfare today. There's nothing really super encouraging about the world that we live in. I was talking to my neighbor yesterday. He's a retired judge. And he said to me, he said, he said, it's a very, very discouraging world that we live in right now. Warren Buffett said two days ago, he's not worried about the stock market. He's worried about nuclear war and pandemics, right? People are living, there's a spirit of fear. And I think we can feel that. And the six stages of, of Elijah, number one, verse three, let's read this together, says this, and, and when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life and went to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, he run. The first thing that we do when we're scared, you know what we do? We start thinking about our own life, our own safety, self-preservation, and that's a natural instinct. When we're in a fearful situation, when we're in a scary situation where we feel our life is threatened, we are gonna start thinking about me. When we are in a situation where we are feeling that we're gonna start losing stuff, times are gonna get hard, relationships maybe are falling apart, we start thinking about self-preservation. That's the first stage of discouragement. We start thinking about how I can save my own life, my own skin. Number two, uh, we see also verse three, it says this, and he left his servant there. Verse three, Elijah leaves his servant there. That speaks to me, you know what that speaks to me? About a servant was a guy who just ministered to, 
to the prophet. He was a friend. He was someone there that was just with him at all times. Wherever he went, his servant would go with him. And the second stage of, of dis- discouragement for, for Elijah was that he leaves his friend there. He leaves his servant. Second stage of, di- of discouragement in our life is we start isolating ourselves. We start withdrawing. We start kind of going back to our corner of the ring, the boxing ring, maybe in a relationship or maybe a struggle in marriage and maybe two spouses are just, they can't figure it out and they, each spouse goes back to their corner of the ring and they kind of regroup. We isolate ourselves and we start experiencing some loneliness. Number, number three, the third stage of discouragement is actually in verse four and it says he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness the wild place, right? He just starts, he starts going by himself into the wild places. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree. What's a broom tree? It's a shrub, it's kind of a bush. It's kind of low seated, so he's kind of tucked underneath there. He's sitting underneath that. Broom tree just sounds lonely to me, doesn't it? You know, I don't know if you have a broom tree. I'm not a real gardener or a tree person, but it just sounds like a lonely kind of tree. And it says here in verse four, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. What's going on here? Elijah begins to dismiss the meaningfulness of his own life. I think when someone, when we're really discouraged, like, I don't know if you've prayed that prayer, Lord, maybe it's better if I was dead. I mean, maybe it's happened. I'm sure we have prayed that. And we start dismissing the meaningful of our, meaningfulness of our life, the meaningfulness of who we are to other people, Right? Maybe you're here today and you are a person that just, just speaks into other people's lives. And I know that there are people like that here. Maybe you're a grandparent. Maybe you're a dad or a mom. Maybe you're a teenager that has some influence with other, other friends in school. And I think that when you're discouraged, we start dismissing the meaningfulness of our life. And we say, I'm no better than my father's. And you know what happens? We forget that the hand of God is on our life. We forget that. We forget that we're anointed by God. That we have a portion in the body of Christ. Don't ever come to church and think, you know, I have no place here. I have no portion. There's a portion for you. And you know something? If, if someone doesn't take up that, that portion and serve, then it's kind of empty. It's left empty. And we start dismissing the meaningfulness of our life. Look at cultures today that don't know God, that are steeped in idol worship an idol, an idol, you know, and, 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 and religion that just is so, um, that's so anti-human, that's so anti-person, and you can begin to see that there's so much death, there's so, death is so common and it's so overlooked. I think of places like India today, where you can be in places where, where there's just people that are dying and there's really um, no impact, there's no care. And when we get, so distra- we get so discouraged that we begin to dismiss the importance of our life. And then number, f- and number four, we see this in verse five. And as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. It's the angel of the Lord. And he looked and there was by his head a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and he lay down again. In verse seven, and the angel of the Lord came back to him a second time and touched him and said, arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose, ate and drank. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. And you know what that speaks to me about? It speaks to me that being a Christian, and I'm really speaking to believers here today, um, being a Christian, sometimes the journey is too much. It's unbelievable, you know? It's, we're in a place where like, wow, this is, I'm, I'm officially overwhelmed. 
And we're in a place where we're just like, we want to lay down and go to sleep. Have you ever done that? I've done it. I just want to sleep. And this is, this is the fifth stage of, 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 dis, of discouragement. We just want to disconnect from reality. Because when you're asleep, it's kind of pleasant. I don't know. There's this kind of pleasant experience. You're disconnected from reality. And you don't really know what's going on. And your time is passing. And you're just not connected. Or not maybe sleep. Or maybe we go into some kind of sublimation or some kind of activity where, where it just takes our mind off of reality. Because we no longer can understand reality and, uh, and relate to it in the right way, and he sleeps. But you know what I love about this? Is that God ministers to Elijah. Sometime, if you have some time, if you don't make time, go through the Bible and look at how God ministers to his people. How, how God touched Daniel. When he was flat on his face, and it says in Daniel, he said, the vision was so great for me. What God had shown me he was gonna do was so great. I was overwhelmed, I was laying on the floor, and I, was, I had no breath in my body. <laughs> And it says, and then one in the likeness of, of the similitude of man, which is Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, comes, touches, touches Daniel, and raises him back to his feet. I love it that it's okay with God that this is not some spiritual contest that we always have to be Superman. Amen? Sometimes we can just be like, God, okay, I can walk. I like Psalm 23. You know, I will lay myself down in green pastures, you know. Sometimes that's all we can do. God, I can lay down right now in green pastures and just let you love on me. And that's okay. And we see that Jesus here is ministering himself. He cooks some breakfast. Cake, I'm sure it was tasty cake, you know? Like some of the cake that here that we eat, that Michelle makes for us. It's tasty cake. And you know, the Holy Spirit, and, and, and Jesus Christ is ministering to him. And that's, that's the fourth stage. And the fifth stage we see is a little bit farther um, Arise and eat, we see, let's read in verse, verse seven, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you, verse eight. So he arose and ate and drank, and in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God, or of Sinai. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't try to counsel him at that moment. There's a time to get counseling. Sometimes when we try to counsel people or ourselves, and it's not the right time because we have not gotten to the end of ourselves yet, Jesus is just gonna minister to us. And when we get to the end of ourselves, in verse nine, and he went into a cave, right? And spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that the rhema of the Lord. A rhema is two, one of two words in the Greek for the word word. And one is logos, which means the written word, or the official, or the creed of God. And then there's the rhema. Rhema is when that word, the Bible verse, or, the, or a principle of God, is revealed to you in a very personal way and it speaks to you on the inner man. And the word of the Lord comes to him and says, I love this, what are you doing here, Elijah? Don't you love that? You know, 40 days on the road and he gets there. He's at his mountain, he's ready for his experience. He's ready to reconnect with the power of God and feel like a powerful prophet again. And the Lord's like, you are not in the right place geographically. What are you doing here? You ever been in a situation in your life where you're just drifting for a while and then you come to your senses and you sense the Lord say to you, what are you doing here? Like the prodigal son, right? He comes to himself, you know, in a far country. And he says, what are you doing here? And then he went into the cave. So he, and, he, and he says, verse 10, I have been very, and listen to what Elijah says and see if it's something that you haven't said before. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel 
have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life, right? This is like, I think this is a level of, of discouragement where in verse 10 we're reading about someone who is just living in just total self-centeredness. I am I'm alone, I am left, and, and I am, I am be, and injustice is happening to me. You ever sense that discouragement where all these things are happening to you? You're in a place where, where no one seems to know and I, I, I'm keeping the faith, I'm doing the right thing, I'm discouraged and it's, it just seems so overwhelming. And then in verse 11 we see here, it says, then he said, go out and stand to the mountain of the Lord. So God says to Elijah, okay, I'm gonna show you the mountain. I'm gonna show you something here. You're gonna see what you came to find and I'm gonna show you thing. What happens? And the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains. Now, if you can imagine a wind so strong that it tears into rocks and breaks rocks, that's a powerful wind. And it broke in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. Sometimes God has to take us to this place where we need to see something sensational or we need to reconnect with this old thing, you know, like this sense of power that we had. In the, maybe if I speak in tongues more or if I sense the Holy Spirit anointing me again or if I can get into like an amazing, powerful prayer meeting or if I can be in ministry and sense that power when I'm preaching, if I can get back to that and then God takes him and he shows him, I'm gonna show you the wind. I'm not in the wind. And what happens next thing is an earthquake. God is not in the earthquake. What does it mean that God's not in it? It just means that Elijah's not finding encouragement. He sees the wind. What's happening with Elijah? Elijah is beginning to understand that power, that encouragement is not related to power. And so the earthquakes, those things that are unshakable, those things that are unmovable are now moving. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. I have. And it's the, weird, it's the weirdest feeling because the very thing that you think that just never moves the earth, the floor, the ground is shaking. And then, the, and then the third thing was fire. Fire that just burns up anything that is living, that can destroy it. And the Lord was not after, the Lord was not in the fire. And then it says this, and after the fire, a still, small voice. In the Hebrew, it means a delicate whisper, a soft, delicate whisper. Has God done that in your life where you've gone from a sense of power and moving and just just, you know, like incredible sensation to lots of signs and God is answering your prayers to where that's not, that's not that feeling anymore. Has God brought you to a place where, that, where you see it all and you're like, that doesn't impress me anymore. I saw the prophets of Baal. I saw the fire come down from heaven. Fear right now is in Elijah's heart and that fear is greater than these winds and, and these amazing sensational things that are happening at Mount Sinai right now but there's a still small voice, there's a whisper. God begins to whisper to us. You ever hear God's whisper? You know, it's a different kind of message this morning, I'm sorry. It, it's a whisper. And we're no longer impressed by the wow, the incredible, the super sensational. And there's a whisper, there's a rhema. Elijah couldn't find any courage in any of that. The word of the Lord comes to him and it's a personal word from the Lord for Elijah. That is the beginning of the road back to getting courage into our life. It's a personal word from the Lord when, when friends and circumstances and the idols and the things that we would go to 
when we needed encouragement or a sense of affirmation. And the Lord just systematically removes that in our life and we're just in a place where it's just the word of the Lord. It's just a promise from God. Number two, how do we find courage? And this is Hebrews chapter 12. And I don't want to read it, but it's just, there's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 22, talk about two mountains. The first mountain we'll recognize in that chapter in those verses in Hebrews chapter 12. And it talks about Mount Sinai, this powerful place. But the writer of Hebrews saying that as a New Testament Christian, not Old Testament, but a New Testament Christian, someone who's a follower of Christ, someone who is a person that uh, is living in the new covenant that is living under the salvation that comes by faith through Jesus Christ is not called to that mountain of power and sensationalism, that mountain of judgment and that power of that, that mountain of fire. We're called to a different mountain. We're called to the Mount Calvary. It's called Zion in the Bible. It's Calvary's mountain. It's a hill. We know it's a hill, but it's really a mountain. And whenever you read about mountains in the Bible, it's always relating to kingdoms. It's always relating to a kingdom. And so the Calvary, the cross on the hill, we just celebrated that in Easter recently, Resurrection Day. And that mountain represents a brand new kingdom that comes into this world. And it's a kingdom that is very powerful. And here it's a picture of, of just like when we are discouraged and when we're on the run, we, something has just gotten underneath our skin and we're on the run, we're heading to a mountain and it's called Calvary run to Calvary, run to this hill. What does that mean? It means that there was another man, that, there was another power that was revealed there, not the fire and judgment, but it was, the, it was Christ that went to the Mount Calvary in obedience, and he was not afraid to die. Elijah was afraid to die. He was afraid to go back to Jezebel and to, uh, to Ahab. And what we see in two chapters later in 1 Kings chapter 21, God speaks to him, encourages him, and he goes back and he speaks directly to Ahab and Jezebel and God's will is done. But here Jesus himself, and Elijah is a picture of, of just the frailty and the, and, and, and the limitations of, of us. But Jesus is not like Elijah, he goes to this Mount Calvary. He goes to Calvary and he's not afraid to die. He's not afraid of the threats of the Jezebel system, the system that is anti-God and anti-Christ. And he goes, you know why? Because there's a, there, there, there's a part of us the, crucifi the crucifiable self can find courage because it's not afraid to die. It's not afraid to die. You know, and there's some parts of the world that people are literally not afraid to die and they will, they will fight their cause politically and militarily because they're not afraid to die. Actually, to die in their endeavor is actually uh, an honorable thing. And those are dangerous people right there because they're not afraid to die. They're not afraid. They're going to just run right at you like with like kamikaze, with, you know, with, with grenades on them or something. These are dangerous people because people that, are, that have some sense of fear for their lives, they're predictable. You, you can predict what they're going to do in, circum, in certain circumstances. But Jesus was not afraid to die. He actually came to die. And for the believer, for you and I, when we can understand, and this is the practical point of the message here this morning, when we're not afraid to die, when we understand that our assets, that what we have cannot be ever taken away, we, like Jesus, can go to the cross and not worry about losing. Maybe I'm never going to get married. Maybe I'm never going to have kids. Maybe I'm never going to have this or that. Or maybe I don't get what everybody else has in my life, in their, in, in their lives. And I'm afraid to lose that 
Maybe we're living by some kind of code where people expect things from us and we don't sense that we're getting those things and we kind of get discouraged. I've been praying for so long for this thing like Hannah was praying for a son for so long. And it was so easy. It says that she was in the, it was in the, she was in the temple crying out to the Lord, groaning. And the priest there that saw her groaning and praying and, and the priest thought that she was drunk, right? Have you been to a place where where you're, you're waiting so long for an answer from God, or maybe you're going back into something that you came out from before, and you're like, oh, Lord, not this again. I don't want to lose again. But I think as the believer, and I want to close with this, the believer is the person, is it, you know, we have something that can never, ever be taken away, and this is what gives us courage. Let me just read you a quote. Whenever you start to feel this deep anxiety over failure, you need to realize something very simple. If God in his relationship with you, if his love for you, if your identity in Jesus, if your salvation is, if his grace, if those things were your real most valuable assets, then you wouldn't be that afraid. Do you know why? Because for a Christian who's not just a Christian up here, but who existentially says, God, you are my glory, you are the lifter of my head, there's never really a risk to lose your real assets. Your salvation is not something that can be lost. If it could be lost, it would mean that it was human or that my sin was greater than the salvation that Jesus finished when he said in John 19, it is finished. When we understand that these assets, that these things that God has given us, the Holy Spirit will never leave us, that the promises of God are yea and they are amen, that they will never leave us. It means that, it means that our eternal hope would never ever be taken away than that, kind of, that kind of confidence, that kind of promise, that kind of still small voice in my life that says, but it will not be removed. And when that is in our life, then we have a courage and we're not afraid to die. We're not afraid to march into a situation where we know there's gonna be conflict or controversy or I actually may walk out missing an arm or a leg, you know, spiritually speaking. Maybe I'm gonna lose something in this circumstance. Maybe if I make a decision that's the right decision to make with God about my purity or about my walk or about my finances or about something in my life with my family, Maybe if I make those decisions and I lose something, guess what? We gain something that we could never ever lose. What is his courage? His courage is this. And I'm gonna quote, I'm gonna end with this quote. The fire from heaven, Elijah, is explained by the lost in the wilderness, Elijah. Not the other way around. Just as the glory we have in Jesus is explained by the crucified Christ and not the other way around. We do not see Elijah in a picture of courage through triumph but courage through death. The courage to stand is the courage to be crucified. The courage to stand is the courage to lose something. Elijah walked that way and so must us, so must, so must we. Your courage will not be found in your triumphant Mount Carmel moments when you scatter your enemies real and imagined but from in front of you and when you can see clearly how protected and accepted you are, your courage will be forged instead like that of Elijah and everyone else that has followed this path. When you cannot stand on your own at all, when you are co collapsed in the wild places, maybe even begging for death like Elijah, you will hear the words, what are you doing here? And there's one more stage of discouragement and that is when 
when Elijah's standing before the Lord, and um, this, is in, this is in verse 13, he sees the Lord pass by. What does he do? Very curious thing. He takes his cloak, his mantle, his cloak, and that was represented his authority as a prophet, and he wraps it around his face. What do we, what do, we do when we hide our face? It's the, it's the epitome of shame. It's when there's just so much discouragement in our life that we just don't want to show our face. Elijah was there. And what happens? What it means to stand for Christ is not, it turns out, to evacuate our internal lives of all fear or to humiliate our enemies with winning, but instead, instead to live out in our very lives the drama of the cross. Elijah lived out the drama of the cross. When he went back in chapter 21, he was walking out the drama of the cross of Christ because he was not afraid of his life. The problem is much, the problem is that much of what is actually defined as courage in scripture, the bridling of the passions, the kindness, humility, is seen as timidity, while many who feel themselves courageous because they tell it like it is are just seeking to be a part of their protective tribes. The courage to stand is the courage to be crucified. I think today we can face whatever we're facing. And, and, like, and as Job said, I will trust him though he slay me. That's amazing. Can we pray that prayer today? God, I'm gonna trust you though you slay me. Why? Because in the end, we know the end of Job's story. He has double what he loses. We see that God res- resurrects Jesus from the dead in Romans chapter eight, verse 11. We see Elijah being revived and going back because he's called to face Ahab and Jezebel. And this is what gives us courage today. Gideon, who was a very fearful and a very timid man of God, he faces Baal and he, he makes a statement and he has courage because the Lord shows up. And how do we encourage ourselves we look for that still small voice. We look for the simple word from the Bible. We look for that word of encouragement from a brother or a sister in the Lord in church. This is a place of encouragement. I love coming here. I love here not just because I love coming here not just because I'm the pastor, but I love coming here not just because of the food. It's great food. We're gonna have some great food today. I love coming here because because I'm always encouraged. I'm encouraged when, when people come here and and I'm encouraged to see what God is doing in your lives. So let's not throw in the towel, amen? Let's not rape, wrap our face up with the authority that God has given us. Let's, let's reveal, let's open our face, look to God. Let's look to the future. Let's believe God for things. Let's speak as though, it, even though it is not yet in your life, let's speak as though it is. Let's speak the promises of God. And let's not underestimate the meaningful of your, meaningfulness of your life. And don't, let's not get careless by saying things that are negative, that are just so in unbelief, because your words, your words and my words are creative. We can say things and things that don't exist become, they come into reality. And physics, quantum physics can, can prove that. We say things, and I'm not talking about name it and claim it right now. I'm just saying that, that like, you know, and try it in your own family. If you in your own family, you say something and you just project something into the family environment in the house, that can create so much fear or it can create so much faith. Let's speak faith into circumstances. Let's speak, that Lord, let's speak the promises of God. Let's speak things that like God is trustworthy. Let's, let's speak things that God will not leave us alone and don't withdraw into the six stages of distraction. Let's draw near to God. 
hear the, the, the still small voice in our life and wait and look for that rhema, amen.